Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Mind the Health Gap. This week, we are continuing on our discussion of the determinants of health. And specifically, we are looking at the environmental determinants of health. Today, we are joined by Rob Abrams, a climate change organizer working for MedAct. Welcome to our episode and podcast this week, Rob. The floor is Thank yours. You. Um, yeah, sorry, just before we, Mohammed starts uh, uh, the questioning and discussion with our guests this week, I'm just going to briefly outline for lifelong listeners, lol. Um, the first part will just be Mohammed exploring what the environmental determinants of health are uh, and kind of like bringing to the forefront their significance within our field before... I take over in the second part of the podcast and I speak to Rob about the environmental determinants of health uh, in relation to the work of Medax and what he does and his interests. So yeah, take it away, Mo. Yep, uh, nicely put by Beauty there. Um, let's just jump straight into what the environmental determinants of health are. Um, so recently, according to a Lancet UCL um collaboration on the Commission on Climate Change and Health, there is a recent increase in looking at the environmental determinants of health and how it impacts wider society overall. And basically, we just want to understand for our listeners and everyone who's tuned in what the environmental determinants of health are, how they're defined, what makes them different and different from the other determinants of health that we've discussed I think this question is to Rob. Cool. Uh, thanks a lot for that. And thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, I guess just before I mentioned like some of like the key environmental determinants of health, I guess it's just important to note that it is like, you know, they, they sometimes there is like intersection and like quite a lot of in like overlapping with like what we might call the social determinants of health. And I guess we'll probably be discussing that, um, you know, throughout the conversation and how those intersect. But like when we're talking about environmental uh, determinants of health what we specifically mean is kind of like the exposure to like hazardous substances and toxic materials that might you know come through the air or water soil and you know therefore come through our food as well um you know they, they may be they may they may also include things such as like natural and also technological disasters um but you know the sort of things that aren't sort of like necessarily connected to wider patterns but like we might determine to be like you know, unusual standalone incidents. Um, of course, there's also um, occupational hazards in the workplace where, where that there is like quite a, a lot of overlap with the social determinants of health that we, you know, we start to see there and, and how toxic work environments can affect both our mental and physical health. Um, there's the, also the built environment and like literally the way we build our towns and cities, you know, the way buildings are constructed and, you know, thinking about what, what, how they're designed to, or what they're designed to facilitate as well like you know if they're designed to facilitate like social cohesion um you know do they have a lot of green space or access to nature um so um and then there is kind of the big one that we you know we focus on most of all at medact which is of course climate change and how sort of the burning of carbon intensive fuels fossil fuels has um has altered radically the sort of the wider ecosystems that make up our planet um 
and have sort of begun to have a very negative impact on health. So I hope that kind of just is a bit of a, an overview of what the environmental determinants of health are when we're, when we're talking about those. Yes, most certainly. And I think you touch on an important uh, topic of climate change and just green spaces and how our built environment impacts the health of the individual. And just as recent as in December 2020, um, nine-year-old Ella Kessie Deborah was the first person who actually had her cause of death listed as air pollution. And I mean, this is probably the first time where things have been broken down or considered in an individual level. Because when we talk about climate change and we talk about uh, air pollution, we look at things that impact populations. So why do you think now, or do you think we should be focusing on the individual aspects of these issues? Um, so, um, so yeah, no, I think... Yeah, sorry, sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, initially, we'll be looking at issues of climate change or issues tied to air pollution as a population or the way it impacts a population. But now that there's personal stories behind deaths and air pollution being listed as a cause of death, do you think that would increase the, the urge or set the agenda for actually combating this uh, environmental issues, these in environmental issues in the first place? You know, I, 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 think, I think I really hope it would. I mean, I think that's what we've seen in, in recent years is we've seen as, as, as these things become more recognized and kind of like the scale of things like climate change uh, and ecological breakdown has gathered pace. We've seen the, we've seen the personal stories behind the statistics come out a lot more. But there are still quite a lot of barriers, I think, to to for us actually, you know, to us actually realizing, you know, the full extent of how this impacts us on an individual level. Um, and I think partly there's there's like a psychological element to it to a certain extent that you know, when we're talking about like big environmental disasters and climate change, you know, it, it can be really hard to comprehend the big figures, right? You know, that the, that so many millions of people could be at risk, that so many different species could be, uh, you know, sort of at risk of um, extinction, that this many cities, this many places, you know, it can get overwhelming and it's very hard to comprehend that as opposed to someone like one person in front of you who has, um, you know, who suffers, you know, like a personal loss. And I think, until at least until very very recently um and that's why i think ella's case was such a big you know one of the reasons why ella's case was such a such a huge monumental moment is that there was a lot of skepticism i think because you know like we're kind of you know i think there was kind of like a, a skepticism that was kind of aided by maybe more um traditional and like small c conservative elements of academia to a certain extent of kind of like we know we know that certain things are toxic and whatever but like without conclusive evidence you know it's kind of hard you know it's hard to like say definitively that um, you know these things are having such a massive impact on a personal and localized uh, level. So what you know we're really waiting for the mainstream to catch up what, with what has been identified as the risks to our health, um, and, and and more importantly, we're waiting for that to be applied in a legal framework, which is again what was so monumental about Ella's case about that being legally recognised. But there are like challenges to doing this, and I think as well as like our own human kind of like psychological thing of recognizing you know yeah being able to comprehend things I think there's also like a thing about power right because 
um, you know, when you codify, when you start to codify things into law and set precedents um, and like open up the floodgates for that being recognized even further, it's a challenge to power in, in many ways as it exists now. Uh, and it will naturally force us to admit things that, you know, a lot of people are still uncomfortable with that we, you know, again, looking at the case of Ella and, you know, the communities in Newham in Southeast London and, you know, who air pollution is most impacting there, you know, it's forcing us to contend with the fact that we live in, a, we, we, we still live in a vastly unequal society and people are treated differently um, depending on their race, gender, nationality. Um, and that we're living, and on top of that, you know, the recognition that we are every day living in toxic environments that are harming our health. I think on an individual level, I think there's, there is a little bit of denial there. And it's unfortunate because these big changes um, that we need, you know, are, are also hard things to grapple with. And that's kind of like where I do my, you know, that's what I work on. My, my job, I guess, is in a nutshell is to help people kind of break that stuff down. Yes, and increasingly, I think the importance of environmental determinants of health are starting to become recognized within the global health sphere and the wider medical and health discourses. I think they're starting to feed into wider conversations around socio-political discourses, such as the Black Lives Matter movement and environmental justice. Why do you think this is? Do you think... Um, why is this happening in right now? So like you talked about how now there's more evidence and there's a legal framing behind these cases. And why now is it also linked to the, to what the health inequalities that COVID-19 has surfaced as well? I think, I think there's definitely a role uh, there. I think COVID-19 has definitely brought a lot of things to the fore. Um, and like put things in like our collective consciousness in a way that perhaps just wasn't, you know, happening before. I think it's safe to say over the last years, we've seen like the perfect storm and like convergence of lots of different issues all kind of happening at the same time. And I think when it comes to like the disparities, uh, you know, in, in health, you know, like in environmental determinants of health, it's, just, it's, it's kind of like the case that the evidence at this point is just so overwhelming. The, the denial that you could perhaps have had, you know, just even a few years ago, is just not possible in the same way anymore. Because just you just got to look at the evidence. I mean, um, in the US, there has been, you know, you might have seen that there's been this huge discourse, right, on on the Green New Deal, and it's been this massive platform policy of the Democratic Party, uh, and it's like received a lot of support from like. Um, different areas and like one of the key drivers of that has been communities like that in Detroit um, so someone that spoken a bit with over the last you know year or so had the yeah honor of speaking with on a webinar about a year or so ago with someone called Dr. Abdullah Syed who used to be the health director of the city of Detroit and you know he was talking about how you know in Detroit a predominantly black population um, communities you know have been abandoned in the deindustrialization that happened in the city and you know how how they don't have safe drinking water because you know government are both a, you know a local level and and the federal level has just completely failed them and that sort of racial disparity in the environmental determinants of health in places like Detroit is just you can't ignore it it's so overwhelming um, recently MedAct did some research with the Environmental Defence Fund and Choked Up, um, who are a group of teenagers in London, black and brown teenagers who are fighting on air pollution and also mums for lungs. And we discovered that basically on average in, in London, in, in neighbourhoods, um, 
where there's predominantly black South Asian or um, other ethnic minority groups living, the um, rates of nitrogen di dioxide are on, yeah, on average 24 to 31% higher than in areas where there are white British uh, communities. Um, and like, you know, in COVID, you know, this has a huge bearing on the impact of COVID-19 because like, you know, some, there was a study in the, in the Journal of Environmental Pollution in January that found a really strong correlation in England between nitrogen oxide emissions, uh, particulate matter, and a higher regional rate of COVID deaths. Um, and, you know, it, it, it goes to highlight something that's really uncomfortable to, for a lot of, for a lot of people, a lot of people with power and privilege in society to contend with. The fact that, you know, as much as we may not like to think we do, we, we still very much do live in a racist society. Um, and, and that has a huge bearing on how we prioritize on a collective level, who, who has access to what environments and, and who doesn't get to live in, in safe, healthy environments. Um, and we've seen it play out in a disastrous way uh, during the pandemic. Exactly. And I think you made a really important point on funding and um, the EU started the Green Deal, um, which is a program which takes seven years, uh, which is the next seven years where they've put £1.7 trillion pounds into funding green, the green economy. And also in November, Boris Johnson relayed the 10 point plan. So there's a lot of emphasis on funding environmental initiatives. But how does that translate to localized funding? So does the money or the funds go to the local community, those who are actually impacted by the environmental issues at hand? Um, I think this is a question of like political willpower, you know, um, that we need to, we need, we need good policy and we need people making decisions um, on a local level, which actually reflect the needs of the community and actually have the buy-in of the community there. And unfortunately, what we're seeing right now is we just, we have, we have this huge democratic deficit uh, in our society where there is a complete disconnect between people, both in academia and in politics and, and the communities that, you know, really the, the, their work should be serving. Um, and that, that's, that's no small question, you know, how we, how we fix that uh, that gap, but it's one we have to contend with. I think if, you know, if, if I was to use the example of the environmental movement, the environmental movement has rightly, rightly come under a lot of criticism uh, in recent years because it's overwhelmingly white middle-class and in a similar way to what I just described, very disconnected from the communities that should be, you know, the primarily impacted by environmental destruction. Um, and, and, you know, what we've seen over the last years, a few years with groups like Choked Up and Wretched of the Earth and others forming is that, um, that, um, that, that you know, that, that, that voices have been missing for so long and that when we, when, when those voices start to be um, heard, but not just, not just heard, not just platformed in like a tokenized way, but actually like are, you know, have the space to lead that the, the, you know we we the solutions that we actually need are uh, come to the fore very quickly um and i think there's also something to do there of how in the last few years we've seen you know this this greater recognition of 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 you know how you know racism plays out in the environmental determinants of health um and 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 what we need to do to solve uh, that on a policy level 
Um, yeah. In terms of, I think you've also highlighted the issue of mobilizing and empowering locals within this discourse. How have, do you have any ideas how that could be done on a policy level or actually involving the youth um, in those environments, such as um, I think there was recently a movement where kids from West London, uh, in a school in West London, actually, I think this was a couple of years back, actually, where geography was going to be taken out of the curriculum. Um, so they actually came together and got a petition and had that delivered. And there was actually a discussion on that petition where the importance of geography and understanding the environmental aspects and the determinants of health, how important do you reckon the youth is in this discussion? I think, I think the youth are extremely important. Uh, I think, I mean, when you look at like polling on opinions around different policies and you, you, you see like a huge generational divide, right? And I think that's because, you know, the, the generation coming through now, like, you know, the one, you know, the, the teenagers who are, you know, like, like behind groups like choked up and like behind the climate strikes and all of these different groups, you know, they're, they're seeing things in a very different way to those of us, you know, maybe who are just a little bit older, you know, in the sense that they're, they're contending with um, issues which are going to define their, the entire breadth of their lives in a way that like previous generations couldn't quite say in the same way. And I think that just has like a different impact um, and I think, you know, living in the post 2008 post credit crisis world, you know, it's so much easier, I think, perhaps when that's all you've really known to really point out or like what the structural flaws in society are, because, you know, those of us who were like born in the 80s and 90s, right, we still, still kind of had that still kind of like, you know, idea of, you know, that that sort of neoliberal fantasy that we were getting sold. But, you know, that, the, the, you know, these kids, um, um, they, they, you know, they, they, they sort of have, you know, they've grown their well, they've grown up and, you know, cut their teeth in a world, which is, um, in many ways, a lot less forgiving as well. I think I really feel for a lot of, um, sort of young activists today who've, you know, who look, you know, from the face of it have, you know, looks like they've been forced to, you know, grow up a lot, a lot, you know, a lot sooner than other, you know, the rest of us have had to. Um, I think, you know, I think I think that generation that generation have a key role to play. I I personally feel quite confident they're stepping into it, and I think I think I, I I'm, I'm I'm amazed every day what you know what I'm seeing. Like for example, our our, our, um, our partners that choked up yesterday went went out to um, uh, Whitechapel Road and they went to Brixton and Lewisham and they put up these signs all over the place about air pollution and disproportionate impact um, on communities of color. And I was just like amazed, you know, because we're in a global pandemic right now. And here are these, you know, teenagers who are supposed to be in school right now. And they're absolutely <laughs> schooling the rest of the environmental movement on how it's supposed to be done. I think people our age, people and people with like an academic background and people who've, you know, been in the climate movement, as we might call it, for a while, we, we have like a role to play ourselves in not only like helping with education and supporting people, but we, we, we need to take risks more. We need to be less risk averse. I think, you know, if you don't mind me being like a little bit challenging to like the <laughs> academic sector, I think this is, I think this is one thing that I, I always like to try and challenge people in academia on is that there is this tendency to 
to, to be risk averse and I get it it's because of funding and the power structures that exist within academia but when we take risks we open up spaces um, that you know just weren't there before and ultimately you know it's all great it's all well and good for us to kind of do this research like the research I mentioned before but we need to be doing something with it um, and I think ultimately that means getting political Yep. And this is a big question, um, probably one where many of us will spend our lives trying to find solutions to. But how would we go about addressing the environmental determinants of health when most of them are structural issues or exist at the intersection of several structural issues? Um, so I think we can look at this question as either an academic one or a policy solution one, right? Um, that, you know, um, you know, you can either say like, you know, we need to figure out the policies or if it's, you know, a question, uh, yeah, we can, it's, it's a question of whether or not it's an academic policy solution as in we need to figure out what the policies we are, need, you know, what we need are. Um, or as we or we can look at this as a question around movement building and organizing. And, you know, personally, as someone who's working in, in, in organizing climate health, I tend to look at this as a movement building and organizing issue. Um, I think ultimately, whatever which way we have to contend with the fact there's no way around the problems we're facing there's so many of them but we have to tackle them holistically because they're all naturally interlinked um richard horton wrote in the lancet back in september and he wrote this idea from a medical anthropologist called meryl singer uh, who coined this term syndemic and it's like referring to the way in which like biological and social factors interrelate and how that's important for like prognosis treatment and, and developing health policy um so yeah, Horton basically highlights how we need to take a look at the socioeconomic inequality if we want to take if we want to tackle the pandemic, and I think that's the same case here. It's a mirror image of thinking that's been taking place in what we might call the climate movement over the last couple of decades. Um, you know, we for the most part already know, in my opinion, and this is perhaps a little bit controversial. We we already know what the policy solutions are, right? Um, to fix you know the problems we face, we know that you know to solve the twin problems of emissions and unemployment that we need to create for example green jobs the issue is political willpower and creating social power to create a situation in which those who hold political and economic power have no choice but to implement these policies that we already know we need perfect yes uh, thank you so much rob i just oh my god i panicked because i looked at the time um but yeah, thank you so much for all your answers. I'm just going to get straight into my part. Uh, I'm sure you've seen news reports about all the positive impacts of the pandemic, you know, green recoveries, green new deals, contributing to alleviating some of the environmental determinants of health, you know, such as air pollution. I think what's not being discussed is, address, is addressing how they could actually contribute to alleviating or at least co um, contribute to alleviating the burden of COVID, especially to the most vulnerable populations. Um, it's also not discussed how from the perspective of global North countries that they could also still potentially lead to perpetuating harms to these communities. Um, what, in your view, what would addressing the environmental determinants of have looked like in this current pandemic? Um, is it reflective of the persistent challenges of these communities? I, I, I absolutely think it is. I think the the what we've seen in the pandemic is not necessarily any brand new issues arise. It's it's it's, it's kind of been a synthesis, I think, of of pre-existing problems. Um, and like talking about pre-existing problems, unfortunately, like you know, there was a lot said about like emissions being reduced at the onset of the pandemic. 
depressing thing is that despite the decline in emissions that was seen initially, I think it was around like seven to eight percent globally, the UK uh, is still not on track to meet its own emissions. And like this, this post-pandemic, re, like post-lockdown rebound in emissions that we've seen is like, you know, potentially going to throw us really off track. Um, in terms of what addressing the environmental determinants of health looks like, you know, in the pandemic and post the pandemic, I think, you know, we need to look at some of the inequalities that have persisted throughout, you know, working class communities during the pandemic have had no choice but to keep working. Uh, and they've been, you know, that their exposure to environments that are risks their health has been just through the roof. Um, and of course, this was already a problem before the pandemic that working class communities and people in precarious work, you know, were um, at risk of hazardous working conditions that were taking a massive toll on their physical and mental health. Um, so what do we need to combat this? I, I you know, I, I mentioned green jobs before. I think a big solution to this would be good, good quality, secure, well-paid work in safe working conditions. Um, and this can help, you know, tackle a number of intersecting problems, you know, um, and I think also, you know, one thing we've also seen is the lack of, in place, especially places like London, we, we have seen just like the complete lack of access to, to, to nature and to spaces that are good for our well-being and our, and our health. Um, and, um, and the disproportionate, uh, the, 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 the distribution of that access, which is just disproportionately favoured towards those who already have power and privilege and are less at risk anyway. So we need to take this opportunities to guarantee everyone access to green and blue spaces. Um, you know, talking about access to to open water spaces like lakes and uh, the ocean as well. Um, and I think we need to fundamentally restructure our towns and cities and eliminate the sheer number of private cars. Like you know, a lot of amazing work has already been done. Um, there has been some controversy around the low traffic neighbourhood schemes in London, for example. But there are some systemic, like more, you know, systemic things we can be doing in terms of like guaranteeing things like for example we could be thinking about you know subsidized zero emission public transport um and you know greatly ramping up things for active travel and cycling um and, but this it's a big question because we need to fundamentally restructure the way our towns and cities and how we operate within them work all we know right now is that for example like if i go out onto holloway road where i live right now and i see all the cars you know at the end of the school day, um, backed up for miles, you know, things can't continue like this. Right, thank you. Um, Mohammed, do you wanna? Perfect, thank you. Um, thank you, Rob, that was such a comprehensive answer, you know, and I think um, you touched on many important points there. I think a lot of what you said also is reflected in MEDAC's campaign. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I know in December 2020, you released a health and climate justice paper, and there was the Healthy Planet Better World Conference. Um, and this April, you start a new campaign on health for a Green New Deal. I think what I wanted to ask was, the issue we find with environmental determinants of health is that there are quite a few of them, you know, actually there are a lot of them. And it's arguable that it isn't always the easiest to address all of them. Um, uh, in like specific to the context that we're living in right now, um, what would you say is the most important to address and why? Oh, this is such a tough question. <laughs> it, it is really it is really really difficult to try and sum up the different problems we're facing and 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 to try and to try and potentially rank them in terms of most important because you know 
I mentioned that term syndemic before, and I think the reason I like I like that approach is because, you know, it's hard not to be crisis fatigued right now, but the truth is we are facing multiple crises. I feel like if, right. every time I go onto my t- Twitter, I see I see like this is a crisis, that's a crisis, this is a crisis, this is a whole new crisis we didn't think about, and it's like whoa, there are so many crises. Um, so you know, when you sift through them, there are some that we need we we, we can't not address them simultaneously. Um, like there's you know, we need to address exposure to pollution, whether that's through, you know, air pollution or, you know, you know, sort of the, the, the degradation of resources. Um, we need to tackle unemployment and precarious work. I mean, uh, Michael Marmot uh, and his team did some incredible work on like how that has a massive impact uh, on, on health outcomes and how that's interacted with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We, we can't afford to ignore climate change because that could, you know, literally be, you know, the choice between a livable planet or one we can't live on and we also need to think about a housing market that's not fit for purpose i mean you know i've been talking a lot about london in this and again about london you know just the 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 cost of living is just ridiculous it's not fit for purpose anymore it doesn't work for the majority of people right so that's a lot of things right but you know what call me an optimist but i do think there is a way of addressing all of these simultaneously Mm -hmm. um I, i think that's where creative social policy solutions really come into play. I had a, when I was in uni, I, I, I had a lecturer who was in housing policy, who always used to go on about, um, there's no such thing as like a singular social policy. Social policies always necessarily have, you know, like a knock-on impact in another area that you might not necessarily always consider. But if we take some, but, but we can use that as a strength. So for example, if we take a policy like, for example, green job creation, you know, that's one where if you're creating green jobs, you, you know, for example, if say creating jobs in care or healthcare or you're decarbonizing public transport or stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, you're creating, you know, um, you know, the new jobs and providing hopefully more secure, sustainable work in the long term. Um, you're, you know, um, you're also tackling emissions and therefore so helping to tackle the climate crisis. Um, and, you know, and other policy solutions when you're thinking about like, for example, housing and making housing that's suitable for all, you can, you know, that also has impacts in terms of creating jobs and everything like that. So, you know, retrofitting mm-hmm. homes, making them warm enough in the winter, you know, there's, there's, there's a project in Manchester actually, by the way, where they took theatre techs out of work and they retrained them as to retrofit homes. Um, so they were able to provide new, more secure work and also tackle the housing crisis at the same time. And, and for me, this, this, this is exactly the strength of the Green New Deal because the Green New Deal is exactly about this. It's about figuring out where those policy, creative policy intersections are and fighting for those particular things. Um, so, and it's, yeah, you know, based on these very simple principles of, you know, fairness, equity and, and, and creating green jobs and infrastructure. Um, so yeah, that's, I hope that kind of answers to an extent. Question, no, definitely it does, you know, and I love that you, you as an individual, but also as Medac continue to push for climate health to be at the heart of several health agendas and policy making. Um, and I guess you kind of touched on this, but how how do we move away um, from talking about, not just talking about, but thinking about and addressing climate change, climate health, environmental determinants of health in silos and think about how they also intersect with other major health issues. For example, mental health, chronic diseases, the impacts of 
colonialism? Essentially, how do we make it more intersectional? I think, you know, again, this is a really difficult one. I, I think, you know, I mean, we need to take stock of the fact that a lot of progress has been made on this in recent years. I mean, even just a decade ago, you know, just the, the, the lack of awareness on this was just, you know, vast. But now there is, you know, it's become relatively mainstreamed. Um, but there's still, I think there's still quite a lot of work to be done in collecting and demonstrating definitive proof of the links between certain conditions and illnesses and environmental factors. So like education and research is still, it still plays a huge role in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, part of the issue is that there is still kind of the skepticism and denial, denial, you know, um, like for example, the World Health Organization, you know, they warned a few years ago that runaway climate change may end up causing around 250,000 excess deaths annually just between 2030 and 2050 um it's hard to like comprehend the scale of this right and 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 because of that issue of like power and kind of who power has been exercised in the interests of you know we can see it's not being taken seriously because if it was being taken seriously it would be at the center this would be it right at the center of policy making every every bit of policy making would be considered you know in light of that that horrific fact um uh, and in reality is that if we don't take action unfortunately a worsening climate may be the thing itself that ends up you know breaking those silos down just because it's so undeniable and so present in our lives uh, it right. puts it at the front of the agenda like for example there's a report um that was put out by the climate coalition together with the uk health alliance on climate change uh, that sort of basically indicated just how many more millions of people just in the uk alone um are like you know at risk of flooding and, and heat stress in the years to come. Um, so, you know, we, ideally we need to avert that scenario. And I think that require, the, that issue requires us to push the agenda as much as we can and to take action. Um, and, and, and that necessarily involves us not, let, not letting ourselves be deterred by skeptics and traditionalists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, like saying, and, saying, and saying very boldly that climate change is a health crisis and health justice means climate justice. Uh, and yeah, and not backing down on that. Sorry to Absolutely. jump in. Absolutely. Yeah, go on. Yes, I think we've we've been discussing the local issues and the local impact of climate issues and environmental health. Um, looking at looking at it from a more global context, what is your thoughts on ecocide as an international crime? Because I think there's there's a lot of discourse recently of actually having a framework that punishes countries for. Um, basically destroying nature destroying nature destroying ecosystems yeah. and that definitely will help the global countries which do not have power and of course in this discussion there's always power imbalances and issues tied to issues greater issues where where smaller countries don't have that much say on the decision making aspects so with having well with classifying ecocide as an international crime deter private companies or countries from taking part in in environmental issues? I think what I'm going to say, I, I, I don't want to get too negative. Um, the movement for ecocide, I think, has a lot of potential and it's very exciting. The only thing I would caution against is the something that we've repeatedly seen in in international law 
is that international law really is only as strong as the willingness to, to observe it and to enforce it. Um, and uh, unfortunately, no, you know, <laughs> nowhere is this more true than in climate policy. Um, you know, uh, in 2015, the, you know, uh, the well, you know, the countries of the world all met in Paris and agreed on this uh, target, you know, to achieve net zero by 2050. And the truth is, <clears throat> is that when they did that, the, the frame, even the framing from the very beginning, unfortunately, was in the wrong place. Like net zero by 2050, it, it's too late. It's unfortunately too late, you know, based on everything we know now. Um, but it has become a cornerstone of international law. It was watered down because it's based on political considerations of getting different countries on board and that those compromises. A lot of effort, resources, a lot of sweat and tears went into procuring that agreement. And now where we've ended up, you know, five, just over five years later, we went up in a situation where oil and gas companies such as BP and Shell are using that hard work and that, you know, compromise, but still, you know, difficult decision that was made in Paris, um, you know, to, to, to greenwash themselves, to say, oh, look, we you know our, our, our business operations are in line with net zero by 2050. But when you actually look at what they're doing in practice, they're still planning to burn, you know, through their reserves well up until 2050. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so, you know, it, what we've seen is the undermining of, you know, of, of, of global efforts to tackle the issue. And I guess that's my only concern about trying to legislate on an international level eco side. Uh, it would work if there were effective, you know, um, barriers, if there were effective, um, you know, ways of enforcing it. Unfortunately, we don't really have those at the moment. Um, so necessarily we've got to, we have got to act on a local level because we have to change uh, that political willpower. And, you know, we all, we're all familiar with that phrase, you know, think global at local. And I think that's still a really relevant slogan to be thinking in terms of because that, you know, political willpower, we can only shore that up when, when, you know, we have toppled uh, an unjust political and economic system which has you know is 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 willing to let the problem go on and on and on you remember we have a government that's ideologically opposed to the idea of intervening in the job market to create jobs you know they, they reluctantly want to do it there's an issue um you know and then when you tie this to to all the different intersections how this plays out in terms of race gender nationality uh, and other intersections you know there's a clear you know issue of justice here of of basic rights um, and I think in many ways, actually, that, you know, as, as well-intentioned as the move to kind of like tackle this um, on a global level for global in international institutions has been, it, it, it's not, that, that strategy is not really up to the mark anymore. Um, you know, if you look at what, the, you know, if you look at the reports the World Health Organization put on their website about climate change, you know, they, they, they seem pretty bold and they seem almost pretty radical in parts. The problem is, is that the, the people who really matter, the, the companies who are responsible for climate change and the governments who are responsible as well, aren't listening. And, they, and, and the system at the moment allows them to play by their own rules. So in my opinion, the route we should be taking in the years to come is, is more akin to that of, um, of, of a movement for, for civil rights and justice um, at, a, at a grassroots level. Um, we need to create a situation in which the demand for whole 
wholesale change is so strong that those with power, the ones that we need to take accountability um, and, and take some responsibility for the situation, they can't ignore that anymore. Um, and that's tough because that's no longer a question of like, what's the right policy? There's no longer a question of finding some technocratic fix that's now in the realms of getting into our communities and organizing like hell, um, which can be daunting, but I, I don't think there's an alternative. Thank you so much, Rob. And I guess have, having said all of that, I guess my last question to you is, and you kind of touched on it, that in order for like these environmental determinants uh, to hold weight, you know, and to be taken seriously and gain mobilization, should we be solely approaching and addressing them through a, a global public health framework? You know, how, if we do have this global public health framework, how do we centralize the voices of communities most affected by, by these determinants of health? You know, this includes, for example, farmers in India right now protesting uh, their livelihoods. Uh, this includes indigenous populations from the Amazon in Brazil. Um, and the reason I ask this is because a key issue in this climate health, environmental health debate is that there's always this kind of like divide, you know, global North countries, you know, we're leading these conversation, we're doing the most to tackle these issues, but then it's not reflected in their colonial or imperialistic histories, you know, and then global South countries such as China and India are being, are then being cited as the main perpetrators um, when I don't think that tells the complete story. Like, what, what do you think needs to change in our agendas, in our legislation, especially as the UK, um, to tell a truer and fairer story? So I think in the context of the UK, I think we have a massive role to play here in particular because we were the centre of this horrific regime, right? This imperial regime that controlled so much of the world that enforced a particular way of doing things on so much of the world. You know, when we talk about that net zero by 2050 goal, it's not, you know, it got legislated on, on, a, on a UK national level, but it's not taking into, it, it's only taking into account domestic emissions and it's not taking into account like historical emissions and, and, and international emissions we're responsible for. So like, you know, in terms of historical emissions, you know, the UK industrialized at the expense of its colonies, um, you know, way before much the rest of the world and, you know, started polluting much earlier. There's also the fact that, for example, finance you know in hosted in the uk still plays a huge role like for example there was a fact that there was a statistic that was determined by a carbon tracker a few years ago um that basically was something like the the finance that's hosted in the city of london alone is 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 is, is responsible for some 15 percent of glo total global emissions that that's huge you know, you wow. can yeah <laughs> wow you can tackle the emissions of of, of the you know city of london uh that, that, that they're responsible for alone and contribute and make a huge contribution you make a far bigger contribution to global emissions than actually just focusing on domestic emissions which is interesting not saying we don't need to focus on domestic emissions we still need to do that too um but you know policy's got to be joined up at, at a local and a global level right um it's but 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 the, but the uk is a big player in on the global scene if we change the, the 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 power structures here, if we if we change that political willpower here, that I think that will have necessarily a big impact on those global public health 
um, frameworks and what we're prioritizing as a nation within them uh, as, a, as, as a, you know, powerful player within them. Um, I think those global, in the meantime, those global public health frameworks, they're, you know, they're still, they're still very, very important. Um, I guess the only thing I, I guess I, I get a little bit unsure about is like the, the extent to which they're institutionalized. Um, you know, not to say we don't need institutions and standards and regulations. We definitely need all those things. But like to, to go to your example that you raised of, you know, the farmers in India, indigenous communities throughout Latin America and elsewhere that are on the forefront of extractivism and climate injustice. Um, we kind of need our like own systems of, you know, re, you know, of, 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 of platforming those structures, struggles and bringing attention in the UK to them, um, which, you know, there are a lot of amazing groups in the UK right now who've like done a lot of work to, to highlight the struggle of the farmers um, in India. Um, and like there's work done by like civil society in the COP26 coalition to like highlight those struggles as well. Um, and we need to highlight those because they bring a whole new, um, they bring a whole new dimension to the way we think about global public health and who we're prioritizing and how we think about it. Is it simply just like, what are we doing joined up on the international level to coordinate our response to particular, uh, you know, illnesses or, or, or pandemics or, you know, on that level, or is it, you know, are we thinking more holistically about, you know, what does global public health really actually mean? You know, should it actually be something that, you know, determines what's at the heart of our economy? And should we necessarily be moving from an economy that's based on profit motive to one that's based on health and well-being? Um, you know, that, so just like, just mention like a really interesting example. You might have seen that there was uh, this, this, they're planning a new deep coal mine in Cumbria recently, right? And um, they, the council there voted for it. And when they voted for it, he said this really interesting thing. He said, um, uh, the council said, uh, I wasn't elected to tackle global issues, which I thought was really okay. interesting. <laughs> wow. um, and it was really ironic because like West, I don't know if you know much about like West Cumbria, but basically they're really susceptible to flooding. And they've had they've, right, in okay. 2009 and 2015, they had some horrendous flooding, really impacted, like whole communities had to, you know, evacuate. Um, and they're one of the communities that are very much at risk in, in, the, in, in the years to come. Um, and, and, you know, on that level, there's some, you know, that, that working class community in, in the West of Cumbria that's experienced deindustrialization de and hasn't really shared in, you know, has, has been denied quite a lot of, you know, the, 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 the wealth um, that's been, you know, sort of hoarded by the very rich in, in society. Um, you know, there is something about how they have a lot more in common with 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 with, with the farmers in India and with those indigenous mm -hmm. communities in Latin America than they do with perhaps, you know, um, the political class in Westminster. Um, right. And I think there's, there's something there about how how we highlight that and how we highlight that the, the, the health of their community is just inextricably tied intimately to, 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 those, to those other communities around the world. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like a narrative thing. And I think, again, that's, 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 a, that's it's a question of doing some very deep and hard work in our communities. Um, Definitely. Um, thank you so much, Rob. Um, you've really given us insightful takes. And I love that you weren't afraid to be political and controversial. We love a bit of that on our podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. 
what really it's not even being controversial you're just telling the truth um yeah and this this is such a important topic for us because essentially when you think about climate health and climate justice it's technically about who gets to live and who gets to die and as you said in your own words who gets the right to live in safe and clean environments um yeah do you have any social media shout outs you want to do before we close always um yeah (laughs) (laughs) um we've just launched we've just launched the twitter account for uh health for a green new deal and health for a green new deal are also on instagram so if you want to go follow either of those we'd be massively grateful um good place to keep up with what's going to be happening over the next few months thank you rob as well thank you and i really enjoyed the discussion and i think it's very important to have these discussions instead of the instead of the discussion being co-opted by private institutions as we're already seeing with Build Back Better. Um, so thank you for your insights. Thank you so much, yes, everyone. Thank you so much, Rob.